I want to invite you to open with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to be uh, continuing our series on worship this evening. And we're going through the, the, the Bible and, and looking at what it teaches us about worshiping God. And uh, last week we took a break from the series and Abraham uh, ministered uh, from the book of Ephesians. Next week we'll also be taking a break as we're going to have an elder-led prayer and worship night. And so I really encourage you to be here next week for that. You're not going to want to miss that. You know, we did one of those a few months ago, and how many of you enjoyed that when, when we did? Is anybody alive out there tonight? Okay. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we're going to have another one of those next week. I encourage you to uh, bring somebody with you for that. Uh, it's going to be a powerful time of prayer and, and ministry uh, together, so that's next Sunday. But tonight we're, we're back in this series and the last time we were in the series, uh, Pastor Mark brought a word on Solomon and the dedication of the temple. And uh, how many of you remember that word? And, and he did a really a fantastic job uh, preaching that message on uh, worshiping the Lord in, in public and the need that we have to assemble and gather together for worship. Amen. I'm going to be amening myself a lot tonight. All right. <laughs> but uh, we're continuing now as, as we've moved now from Solomon. After Solomon, if you don't know the history of the Old Testament, the history of Israel, uh, Solomon was the third king of Israel. The first king was King Saul. After him came King David. After King David came King Solomon. But after Solomon died, the kingdom split and went into a, a period of prolonged civil war with the northern ten tribes going one direction, appointing their own king, and then the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin forming the southern kingdom. And so where we are in the text now is 57 years after the split, 57 years after Solomon. And so there's two kingdoms. One is called Israel. The other is called Judah. Judah uh, periodically would have good kings, faithful kings who would lead reforms and call God's people back to faithfulness and to worship. And during the time of the passage we're looking at tonight, Judah is in the midst of one of those national reforms and national Revivals as the king would rediscover the truth of God's word and call God's people back. And so in the southern kingdom in Judah, there's a king reigning whose name is Asa. And the, that nation is experiencing God's blessing and prosperity as they're implementing his word and his commandments. The nation of Israel did never have any faithful kings. They never had any good kings. All of their kings were idolaters. All of their kings were wicked. All of their kings were evil. And we're looking at tonight a particular king and queen. The king's name is Ahab, and the queen's name is Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. And we read about them in 1 Kings 
chapter 16. Ahab is the seventh king of the nation of Israel post-split during this season of the divided kingdom. And so in 1 Kings chapter 16, uh, verse 29 was where we'll start tonight. I want to tell a little bit of the story, a little bit of the background, but then I, I want to bring it to home where we're at today because uh, what, what's happening here also happens in our world today, and I'm going to do my best to try and show you that tonight. But let's pray before we begin because we really need the Lord's help. Amen. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that uh, your uh, word would go forth with, with clarity, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to understand it clearly. Lord, help us to know that uh, these aren't just stories written in a book, Lord, but that all scripture is inspired. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for your people, for instruction, for training in righteousness, for equipping Lord, that you would make us complete and ready for every good work. Lord, we open your word in faith, believing that it is your word and that it will not return to us void. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 29, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria, that was the capital city of the northern kingdom, 22 years. Verse 30 gives us a little bit of Ahab's resume. It gives us a summary of his reign that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Now, if you read the Chronicles, if you read the the, the stories of these kings that came before him, they were pretty evil. They were pretty wicked. But what Ahab brought in and what Ahab instituted, what was a level of evil and wickedness unlike they had ever seen before. More evil than all who were before him. Verse 31, it says, And as if it were a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that was the first of the kings of Israel in the divided kingdom, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he takes to himself a wife, a Gentile wife, not of the uh, clans of Judah or the the nation of Israel. He, He does what is actually strictly forbidden in the law of God for the people of God at that time. And he worships an idolater. He worships someone who's literally named after Baal and this false god and this idol. And we know as we read the Old Testament, and Paul tells us this as well, that all of the idols, all of the false gods, that behind them there were demonic powers. Behind them there were specific demons attached to the worship of these false gods. 
And so here the king of Israel brings into his house as his wife a woman given over to demon worship. A woman given over to false idolatry. A woman who does not love the Lord, who does not seek the Lord, who does not serve the Lord, but in fact worships and has given herself over to demons. And it says that after he marries her, that he goes and serves Baal and worships him. And so he departs from the worship of the Lord. He departs from the worship of the one true God. He departs from the, the Shema, which they would re recite every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That there's only one God, the creator of heaven and earth, and our God is that God. And he brings in these other gods, these false gods. And so he turns from monotheism, the worship of the one true creator God, the God who created all things, the God who uh, called Abraham, the God who delivered the children of Israel under Moses, the God who established the kingdom of Israel in the promised land. He, he, he forsakes that God, enticed by his wife, and he begins to serve Baal. And it says in verse 32 that he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. And so he builds a temple. They have a temple in Jerusalem, of course, in the southern kingdom devoted to the worship of the one true God, to Yahweh. But he erects a temple, not to the one true God, but to Baal and puts an idol and an altar in that house so that Baal can be worshipped in the land that God had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He builds this altar in this, this temple in Samaria, the capital city, at the very heart of the government, the very heart of the political power, the, the very seat of, of, of where his authority came from. He puts the worship of this idol. Verse 33 says, And Ahab made an Asherah. That, that was another goddess. It was a pole that would be set up. Now these two, two gods, Baal was known as the sun god or the storm god. It's the name of the supreme deity worshipped by the Canaanites. So the, the other nations, the nations that God had driven out because of their great wickedness. Baal was the god of the weather. It was also called Almighty at times and even the Lord of the earth. They believed that Baal was the God who brought rain and thunder and lightning and who fertilized the earth, who controlled the weather, controlled the sun, and brought the harvest. Now the Asherah pole that he set up, this was a moon goddess. This was the, the primary female deity of the Canaanites, the, 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 the people of the land that worshiped these false gods. And so he sets up in the capital city a temple to worship Baal and this pole to worship Asherah. And it goes on to say that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The worship of Baal and Asherah held the allure of free, if you will, free sexual expression uh, these religions involved in their worship and cultic practices, prostitution, 
and illicit rituals. So, so part of the worship of these false gods I- included these perverse uh, sexual expressions. And there was also the peer pressure from the other nations that worshipped these false gods. And the kings of the, Is- the Israelites wanted to be accepted of, among the peers of these sinful nations. They wanted the approval of the sinful nations, and so they themselves were willing to bring in and to mix in the worship of these false gods to be accepted by, be accepted in the the nation, the community of the nations that surrounded them. The story continues in chapter 18. We're going to skip around a little bit. This is a very long saga. It spans several chapters. We don't have time to look at every verse tonight. But in chapter 18, verse 4 and verse 13, it tells us that Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, had all of the prophets of the Lord murdered, slaughtered. When the the worship of Baal came in, she she had all of those who were faithful to the Lord put to the sword. Some of them were hidden away in caves and and lived there for years trying to escape from the the, the murderous intent of those who worshipped Baal. And when this happened, when the prophets of God were silenced, The prophets were to declare the word of God. The the, the priests were in uh, in the southern kingdom uh, doing the ministry there in that temple. So there's there's no more priest to teach people the word of God. The king is not following the laws of God. And now the prophets are silenced. Every area of the life of God's people in Israel and the life and the culture that they lived in, all of it was transformed. All of it was changed. When you go from a culture like they lived under, they lived under the culture that was created by the Torah, the Word of God. In the Torah, the family was so highly valued that adultery in that time under God's law, adultery was a capital offense. Adultery at that time was considered the the most egregious breaking of law because family in God's design and God's economy that produces human flourishing, the family is where the, the, the life of a nation flows out of. A family is where children are reared, where children are raised, where children are taught to love and serve the Lord. A family is where discipline takes place. And so Under God's economy, the the most egregious, treasonous act is adultery. Now, we still have capital punishment for treason in the United States, but it's treason against the state. Adultery, though, is treason against the family, which was the the first form of of government that was to be instituted in the nation of Israel. And so you go from a culture that values families so highly that adultery is even punished at that level to a culture where every manner of sexual perversion 
is not only practiced in secret, but promoted openly as a part of being a good citizen, as a part of being a part of the international community. Every manner of sexual perversion is practiced and promoted. And when this happens, every area of life is totally transformed. Because the bedrock of society, the family, is now totally obliterated. Totally obliterated. And so this society that God had created, this culture that God had created under his word, where the priests were to teach the law of God, where the prophets were to proclaim the law of God, and the king was to execute justice according to God's law, all of that now comes under the influence of this demonic uh, woman named Jezebel as she brings in the false worship of Baal and Asherah. It, it utterly transforms the culture. Do, do you see any parallels whatsoever to the world that we live in today? There's this quote. Uh, I want to read you a quote. Speaking about culture. It's, a, it's about a paragraph long, but it's instructive for us. It's from the book called The Mission of God by uh, Joseph Boot, who's a Christian author and a minister. He says this about culture. He says, the original and primary definitions of culture come from a word derived from cultivation, culture, cultivation, that this original definition has almost been forgotten. The Latin verb calore, from which we derive the term, refers to tilling the ground in order to grow things. Older dictionaries therefore render the noun culture as a state of being cultivated and a type of civilization. So here the state of being cultivated in individuals essentially forms or creates a type of civilization that grows as a result of this intellectual and moral tilling. Traditionally then, an educated, mature, and civilized person was considered to be cultured, meaning they were cultivated in terms of a particular idea. So to be cultured is to, again, like he says, you are a cultivated person, educated, mature, civilized around a particular idea. Now, a person's ideal state of being is thus a profoundly religious question. Isn't that true? When you think of the ideal person, the ideal individual, isn't that a religious idea? Well, of course it is. And so, therefore, being cultivated around this religious question... It says that we retain this basic association in our related use of the term cult to refer to a system of religious belief. So therefore, culture 
has consequently been accurately described as religion externalized. That's a great definition for culture. Religion externalized. Your ultimate beliefs lived out in public. That's all that culture is, is the externalization of a religion. Or more simply put, he says, applied beliefs. So, for example, he says, if you visit Saudi Arabia, you will experience Islamic culture, specifically manifest by its laws and education. If you go to certain parts of India, you will witness Hindu culture with its integral mythology and the resulting caste system. If you come to the West, you now witness humanistic culture with some remnants of Christianity in people's language, literature, beliefs, and other cultural artifacts, such as architecture. So when you change the religion, you change the culture. Because all culture is, is religion externalized. And here they bring in the worship of another god. Therefore, changing the religion and transforming the culture. Do you see how this works? And so every area of their life is transformed. Well, God raises up a prophet named Elijah. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says that God sent Elijah before the prophet, or rather the prophet Elijah before King Ahab and pronounces this judgment. It says, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so he comes and he, he says, there's going to be a drought. There's going to be a famine. There's not going to be any crops. There's not going to be any food. There's going to be a severe economic downturn. downturn. It's going to be a massive depression when, when there's no food to eat for years and years and years. This is the judgment of God because of what they have done. Now, after three years, we don't have time to read through the whole uh, story tonight, but after three years, Elijah is once again sent to King Ahab to go and to tell him that God is going to send rain, but that there needs to be a um, contest between the prophets of Baal and Asherah, of which there were 850 and Elijah, to determine who will be the one true God to reveal this. I want to draw your attention as, as Elijah is coming to King Ahab in chapter 18, verse 17. Chapter 18, verse 17. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord. Ahab is the one who brought the judgment of God upon Israel, not Elijah. Though Elijah is the one who pronounced it, God is the one who brought it and Elijah is the one who literally brought it down upon himself by because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord. 
and followed after the Baals. Then he goes on to say, Now therefore sin and gather all, uh, gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. She is providing for them. She is taking care of them. She is feeding them. She is financing them. This is Jezebel. I hope you know the story because we're going to have to skip over it tonight. There's this great contest between Yahweh, the one true God, and the false gods of Baal. Obviously, God wins. Obviously. Obviously, it's no contest. Fire comes down from heaven. When, when they see it, all Israel falls down and worships and says, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And then God sends the rain, as he had promised to do. Ahab was there and, and saw, oh, and then Elijah goes and murders, not, uh, executes justice, let's put it that way. Uh, all the 850 prophets of Baal. Well, guess who that really upset? Jezebel. Her, her country, re realize this, her country had been totally decimated. There was nothing left. They're, if you read in chapter 18, they're looking for places to try to feed the horses. There literally is nothing left. They can't find any food. There is no water. There are no crops. People are dying of starvation. Their country has been decimated because of their worship and their idolatry. And God, because he is gracious and merciful, decides to send rain after he proves himself that he is the one true God. Verse 19, it says Ahab, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Do you think she was saying, well, at least it's going to rain now. At least we'll have some crops. At least we'll have something to eat. No, it says, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She said, I'm going to kill you just like you killed them. And what is shocking to me is that in verse 3 it says, Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. This is amazing that the man who, who literally stood down a nation, who stood up to 850 false prophets, who had the confidence to, to stand and to declare the word of God, who literally just commanded fire to come down from heaven and led the whole nation in repentance as they called out to God, who then went and literally himself slaughtered these 850 false prophets. This is a bad dude, okay? This is not a guy who is pushed around. This is someone who has courage. This is someone who has boldness. This is someone who is not weak in the knees or given to fear. But Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. And he's overcome with fear. What's happening here defies logic. What's happening here defies reason. It's because it is a supernatural, spiritual, demonic attack. 
And so he flees for a season. And what finally sets him free, we see later in, in 1 Kings 19, 15 through 18. Don't have time to read it tonight. But what finally sets Elijah free from fear is he gets a word from God. He gets a word from God. It's the word of God that sets him free from the fear of this demonic woman. It's the word of God. Set free by the word of God. Now, that's a little bit of the backstory. I want to go to another time that Jezebel is mentioned. She does a lot of other awful things. She has a man murdered to steal his vineyard. She, she, God pronounces judgment on her. She is, uh, dies a, a very horrible death. But I want to go now to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, because Jezebel is mentioned again here in this book of Revelation, which is interesting. But what is this king's wife from the Old Testament, from, from ancient Israel, what does that have to do with the church? Well, actually, it has a lot to do with the church. Because though Jezebel is dead, the spirit, the demon behind her is still active. It's still working. And so in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus sends seven letters to seven churches... And we're going to look at the letter that he sends to the church at Thyatira. These were seven churches in seven cities in the first century. And Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. It says to the angel, or that's the messenger, to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, right? The words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He says, I know your works. Can you imagine getting a letter from Jesus to Destiny Church in San Antonio, Texas? What would he write? It's kind of, kind of terrifying, honestly. He says, I know your works. Your love and your faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed your first. So he, he commends them for their love, for their patience, for their endurance, for their service, for their good deeds, for their good works. He commends them. He says, I see them. I, I know them. So he begins by giving them a commendation. But verse 20 he says, but... I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, to participate in idolatry. He says, I, give her I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Be behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation, 
unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast, hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is amazing to me that this, this uh, woman Jezebel is identified here working in this church in Thyatira. Of course, it's not the same literal woman, but it's the same demonic spirit behind Jezebel of the Old Testament. And it says that she is a false prophet and that she is teaching, seducing God's people to practice sexual immorality and to participate in idolatry. And the the spirit of Jezebel, this demonic spirit, was at work in their church. At work in their church. We see the ways that that spirit worked in Old Testament Israel. And it's the same way that it works in the church. It replaces the authority of Scripture with the authority of culture. That's what the spirit of Jezebel leads you to do. To to take God's word and God's authority and God's commandments and set them aside so that we can be like the other nations. So that we can be accepted by the culture. Leading God's people to practice immorality. The other thing that the spirit tries to do is it tries to manipulate and intimidate and control and silence and cancel those who proclaim the true word of God. Jezebel had the prophets of God murdered, tried to intimidate, tried to, to silence Elijah, Elijah rather, Elijah. But I want you to know that just because we don't have altars set up to Baal and, and Asherah poles set up today. It, it doesn't mean that idolatry has ceased. It doesn't mean that this spirit is not at work anymore. In fact, I would contend that, that Baal worship has simply been renamed. It's the same thing, just a new label. It's got a new marketing department that is pumping out propaganda for it. That though the name has changed, the false religion is still actively practiced in our country, maybe more than it ever has been before. The word religion, I don't know if you know this, but the word religion comes from a Latin word that simply means to bind together. To bind together. 
which means that a religion is a system of beliefs, whether they are true or false, which binds people together, which binds the life of individuals together and forms a culture. And it's from this belief system that people derive their purpose, that people derive their meaning in life. Therefore, all people everywhere are, by nature, religious. We all ascribe to a a system of ultimate beliefs. So any system that has ultimate truth claims, ultimate beliefs, is a religious system. Any system that binds people together on ultimate truth or ultimate things is in and of itself a religion. Which means that secularism is a religion. Humanism is a religion. Marxism is a religion. Socialism is a religion. So the fact that we have in our country people who call themselves socialists but say you can't claim the name of Christ because we have separation of church and state, they're lying to you. Because socialism is a religion. And what they're saying is, you have to worship my God, but we're not going to worship or tolerate your God. Does that sound like anybody to you? That's the spirit of Jezebel. It's taken up root in our culture. Why do I say that socialism is a religion? Well, do you know where socialism comes from? It comes from Karl Marx. Karl Marx, who was a devout atheist. Karl Marx, who devised his system of governance, socialism, Marxism, and then ultimately communism, in an effort to undermine and overthrow the worship of God. So a system that's designed to to demolish God is by definition a religious system. So anyone who calls themselves a socialist, whether they know it or not, they're telling you their religion. They're telling you their ultimate truth, their ultimate system, where they get their meaning and their values from. This false system that binds people together in lies rather than in truth. Now we live, we, we, we falsely, we falsely, the church is, has, has been deceived by buying into the lie that there are sacred spheres of life and there are secular spheres of life. That the part of life is sacred and to be lived unto the Lord, but then there's just the secular sphere. But if we truly are to live all of our life unto the glory of God, where is the secular? Where is this? It doesn't exist. There is no secular sphere. And that's the great deception. That's the great delusion that the church has bought into thinking that government is secular and that education is secular and that medicine is secular and that science is secular and that it's all out there in sort of this neutral sphere where there, where there is no God and, and, and everything is neutral and there's no ultimate truth claims. It's a lie. It's a deception. Birth in the pit of hell. Did you know that up until the 1930s, Every single university 
in this country, oh, sorry, 93% until the 1930s, 93% of every university in this country was a Christian university. Founded to educate people in the word of God for the glory of God. 93%. You can go read about the, 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 the spiritual roots and the formation of Princeton and Yale and all of the Ivy League schools were literally founded in their charters for the glory of Jesus Christ. And somehow we have bought into the lie that these were, we, we, we can't impose our, 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 our religious beliefs in these places, that these have to be neutral places. Listen, when the light pulls out, you know what comes in? Darkness. When the light vacates, when the light leaves, when the light retreats, darkness rushes in. And somehow Christians got tricked into believing that the light could pull out and the lights would stay on. But in fact, what has happened is that darkness has rushed in. And we as God's people, we need to not tolerate this woman Jezebel, this, this spirit of idolatry, this false religious system. Amen. I want you to look at something here. I've got five points of application. I'm going to run through these quickly from my introduction that I just laid out for you. <laughs> Faith laughed at that. Look at verse 19, Revelation 2:19. I know your works, your love, faith, service, patient endurance, and your latter works exceed the first. You're doing better than you were before. However, he says, I have this against you. Number one, application, observation. Good works do not outweigh false worship. Good works do not outweigh false worship. You cannot make up for your idolatry by doing more for God. I can't disobey God's word, disregard God's word, ignore God's word, rebel against God's word, and think that I can make it up by being extra good, by giving more in the offering, by serving more in this and doing that. No, he says, I see your works. I see your latter works exceed your former works. However, your good works do not outweigh your false worship. Number two point is that God's people can be seduced and led astray. Verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual, morality, sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Who is she teaching and seducing? God's servants. God's people, God's children, which tells me that God's people can be blood-bought, spirit-filled, love the Lord, but still be deceived and led astray. Therefore, we must always be on guard. I'm not going to re-preach my message that I preached this morning, but we have to know the truth. We have to live lives that are saturated in the Word of God. Saturated in the Word of God. Because the enemy is subtle. So we, we need to be aware. God's people can be seduced and led astray. 
Being a Christian doesn't invalidate you or, or put you in some other category that doesn't mean you can't be deceived. Number three, this is again from verse 20. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Notice they're not promoting her. Notice they're not believing even what she says, he says. They're not preaching the message that he, she preaches, but they're just tolerating it. They're just allowing it to exist. They're just sort of, you, you can have that classroom over there to teach your stuff. It's not in the pulpit. It's not in the main thing, but they're not denouncing it. They're not going after it. They're, uh, and therefore, by tolerating it, they are allowing God's people to be led astray. Let me make some application for you today. Any church that will not stand up on Sunday morning and say what God's word says about marriage, what God's word says about sexuality, what God's word says about abortion and life and the image of God, any church that will not do that is tolerating the spirit of Jezebel. And God says that your toleration is participation in her evil deeds. So that's number three. Toleration is participation. There's so many who believe that they can stay silent on these issues. Jesus here in no uncertain terms, calls them to task for their silence. Saying silence is not an option. Number four, the good news. Number four, we see this in verse 22. Is that God grants an opportunity for repentance. Verse 22, God, God offers an opportunity to, to those who have believed this false teaching, to those who have been tolerating it, to those who have been participating in it. He calls them, forsake Jezebel, return to your Redeemer. That repentance is offered. That there is hope for those who have been deceived. There is hope for those who have been led astray. But that hope, that pathway is Repentance. And so I would just ask you, is there somewhere in your life that you have tolerated or accepted the teaching of Jezebel that entices God's people to participate in idolatry and sexual perversion? Is there somewhere in your life where you are accepting the culture over Christ, not realizing that it is Christ who rules over the culture? Christ rules even over our desires, over our thoughts, over our feelings. The Bible says that we have been bought with a price. He shed his blood to purchase us. Therefore, we must honor God with our bodies. And number five in verse 25, we see it here. He says only, this is what he calls to the faithful, to those who, who have not tolerated Jezebel, who, who, who did not receive her false teaching and her false prophetic utterances. He says, I don't lay any burden on you, only hold fast what you have until I come. Listen, we must hold fast to the word of God. We must hold fast. 
And he promises that for those who hold fast, those who do not compromise, who do not tolerate, who, who, who will speak the truth, of course we speak it in love, those who hold fast to his word, that there is a reward for those who do not compromise. That we will rule and reign with him. And that we will conquer through him who conquered. Amen. And so we must realize that our good works do not outweigh false worship. That God's people can be seduced and led astray. That toleration with Jezebel is participation with Jezebel. But that repentance is offered. Repentance is offered. God calls us back to faithfulness to him. And that we must hold fast to the word of God. Listen, what's happening today in our culture is, number one, not a surprise to God. Number two, it's nothing new. This was happening in Old Testament Israel. This was happening in the church at Thyatira. It's happening here today. What that means is that all hope is not lost. Amen. That all hope is not lost, that God does offer repentance. That the world at times has been dark, but God sends waves of revival. And that we are the ones, we are the ones who are laying, I believe, through our lives, through our prayer, through our worship, we are laying the groundwork for a great move of God. I believe that. I believe that. I'm praying for that. I'm praying that Jezebel would be exposed. I believe that she is. I believe that more and more of God's people have become aware of this demonic power that's infiltrated our culture over the last two and a half years than the last 20 years combined. I put myself in that category. And that as God's people repent and turn to him in faithfulness, pursue him, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, I believe we can see not just our nation, but the nations turn to the Lord in faith. Amen? Amen. Amen.